Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the historical present tense, the phrase beck and call, and real fake bridges. This first segment is by Neil Whitman. A couple of months ago, I ran an episode that contained part of an interview I'd done with Laura Burgels, a business communication coach and storytelling expert. If you listened to the episode, you might remember that she made a suggestion about how I could heighten the drama in telling the story of how I began doing the Grammar Girl podcast. Here's a short clip of how I began the story when I told it to Laura. Um, my background is in science and technology. I'm a, I'm a PhD program dropout in biology. And I was working as a, a science writer and editor. And frankly, I was quite bored. And so I got interested in this thing called podcasting. I love technology. I love gadgets. And so I started a, a science podcast called Absolute Science. And, you know, I just, I fell in love with it. Uh, I did that podcast for about eight months, but you know I was working as a freelance writer and editor, and time really is money when when you're a freelancer. And uh, the podcast was taking so much time that I couldn't justify doing it anymore. But but I didn't want to give up on podcasting. So Laura suggested that I could try telling it in the present tense instead of the past tense. You know, picture it. It's 2005. I'm a science writer. I'm living in Santa Monica. And for fun, I'm doing a science podcast every week. And the science podcast is really complicated. It's taking me a lot of time. And then on top of that, I'm doing lots of other writing and I'm getting burned out. This use of present tense to describe past events is called the historical present tense. I loved the you're right in there with me feel that it gave the story, and it got me wondering about how English speakers use historical present tense when telling their stories. A paper published in 1981 by Deborah Schifrin gives some interesting answers. Schifrin used a framework for analyzing narratives that was proposed by William LaBeouf. In LaBeouf's framework, the first part of the narrative is called the abstract. It's the part that tells the listener they're about to hear a story. Laura did this part for me in our interview. Here's what she said. So you must have a story about how your wildly popular podcast all got started. It's no surprise to have present tense in the abstract of a story because it comes before we've gotten into the actual events of the narrative. In other words, this is ordinary present tense, not historical present. Schifrin studied 73 narratives and found that none of them contained historical present tense in their abstract. LaBeouf's second component is called orientation. This tells the part that establishes the setting and main characters in the story. It basically tells you what the before situation is. In my story, this was the part about doing freelance writing and producing a science podcast. This was also the part that Laura recast in the historical present tense. However, in Schifrin's study, only 3% of the verbs in the orientation sections were in historical present tense. So it does happen, but not very much. LaBeouf calls the main body of the story the complicating action. This is where Schifrin found just about all of the historical present, 30% of almost 1,300 verbs. I, on the other hand, didn't use any historical present in this part of my story— it was all past tense, like in this sentence. 
So, you know, I took those tricks. I was looking at myself, the advice I was giving my clients. And I, and I just put together a very short three or four minute scripted podcast that I did all by myself that, you know, took a lot less time than, than the science podcast. LaBeouf's last two narrative components are called evaluation and coda. Evaluation can happen at almost any point in the story when the narrator offers some commentary on what happened. It uses present or past tense in an expected way. Here's an example of evaluation from the orientation part of my story. I had been writing magazine articles and you never hear from readers. In that example, there's both present tense in you never hear and past perfect tense in I had been writing. And I used past tense in this example from the complicating action part of my story. Yeah, and I thought, well, this can't last. (laughs) The coda is a sentence that wraps up the story and brings us back to the present. And they lived happily ever after is probably the most familiar coda. My coda went like this. You know, now we have about 10 shows and Grammar Girl has been going strong for 15 years. I was curious if Schifrin's stats would hold true with some more recent narratives. These days, there's a ready source of hundreds of thousands of narratives, many of them with transcripts already completed. Podcasts. I didn't analyze 73 of them, as Schifrin did. Instead, I chose just three. First, part of Real Fake Bridges by Jacob Goldstein on 99% Invisible. This story tells about how an architect noticed that the supposedly fake bridges on the proposed Euro note designs were actually modeled on real bridges. Next, Deal by Denise Bledsoe Slaughter on The Moth. Slaughter tells about her first encounter with bartering in order to get through a lean time. And finally, You Can Check Out Any Time You Like, But You Can Never Leave by David Kestenbaum and Elna Baker on This American Life. Baker tells Kestenbaum about trying to keep her siblings safe as a teenager during a harrowing encounter when a mentally unstable woman invades their hotel room. In all three stories, the percentages of historical present in the complicating action part are less than the 30% that Schifrin found overall. In the narrative segment of Real Fake Bridges, 28% of the verbs in the complicating action parts of the story were in historical present tense. In Deal, 15% of the verbs in the complicating action were in the historical present tense. And in You Can Check Out Anytime You Like, But You Can Never Leave, it was 22%. As for historical present in the orientation parts, the percentages for two out of the three stories were much higher than the 3% that Schifrin found. Real fake bridges had no historical present, but in Deal, 18% of the verbs in the orientation part were in the historical present. David Kestenbaum did the orientation part of Baker's story and used the historical present in 17% of those verbs. Schifrin noticed a couple of facts that make the historical present possible in English narratives. To illustrate them, let's take a sentence from the real fake Bridges story. And as Russ is looking at these pictures, the first thing that catches his eye is the 500-euro note. The verb catches is in the simple present tense. But using it to talk about this past event is unlikely to cause confusion, not only because we already know that this whole story happened in the past, but also because if we were actually talking about the present time, we'd use the present progressive tense and say something like, the first thing that is catching his eye. But what about is looking? That verb is already in the present progressive tense, so why doesn't it cause confusion? 
Schifrin observed that unlike in any other part of the narrative, sentences in the complicating action part are understood to occur in sequence. Each verb is understood to refer to an action that happened right after the previous one, regardless of tense. Since verb tense isn't needed for showing event timing, it can be used to heighten the drama of some part of the action. One quirk that Schifrin didn't mention showed up in my selection of three stories. Listen to the following two sentences. The first is from Real Fake Bridges. Russ calls up the designer of the bridge, who he'd talked to for the magazine, and he winds up faxing him a picture of this 500-euro bill. And the second is from You Can Check Out Anytime You Like, where Baker's father later confronts the hotel management about their security. They tell him that she had been outside, she was crying. Both sentences use the historical present tense. Russ calls up, he winds up, and they tell him. But notice that both sentences also use the past perfect tense, who he'd talked to, and she had been outside. Why didn't the speakers use the present perfect tense to go with the present tense in the rest of the sentences? That is, why didn't Jonathan Goldstein say, Russ calls up the designer of the bridge who he's talked to? And why didn't Elma Baker say, they tell him that she has been outside? After reading Schifrin's paper, this seemingly random breaking of the pattern makes sense. Notice that both of the events referred to by the past perfect tense verbs are outside the narrative. In Real Fake Bridges, Russ's earlier conversation with someone for the magazine story was part of the orientation phase, not the complicating action. And in You Can Check Out Any Time You Like, the woman being outside happened before any of the events of Baker's story. These aren't the high-drama, you-were-there pieces. So naturally, they're not in historical present tense. In fact, if Goldstein and Kestenbaum had used present perfect tense, it would have made those events sound like part of the complicating action and confused the narrative. For example, if Kestenbaum had said, they tell him that she has been outside, it would have sounded like the woman being outside just happened just before the conversation with the hotel management, rather than before the beginning of the story. I had no idea there was so much subtlety in how and when storytellers shift into present tense. In fact, there's even more than I presented here. Schifrin analyzes a lot of other factors that play a role, which you can read for yourself if you want to. I'll put the information about her paper in the show notes. But here's a quick and dirty tip for you. You can use the present tense to talk about the past to make things more interesting. But don't use past tense to talk about the present. That doesn't make them more interesting. It just makes them more confusing. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar and a member of the Reynoldsburg, Ohio School Board. You can search for him by name on Facebook or find him on Twitter as Literal Minded and on his blog at literalminded.wordpress.com. David J. asked, what's the appropriate phrase, beck and call or beck and call? Well, the correct phrase is three words, beck and call. If you're at people's beck and call, you respond immediately, whether they beckon or call. It implies complete subservience. It's an old phrase originating in the late 1800s, during a time when beck was used to mean beckon. The problem is that the O-N at the end of beckon sounds a lot like how we sometimes slur the word and in beckon call. 
Kind of like rock and roll, we often say beck and call. The word beck goes all the way back to Old English, but the Oxford English Dictionary seems to say that beckon is even older because they list beck as a shortened form of beckon. Old Saxon, Old High German, and Old Norse also had similar words. At first, beck didn't mean to signal someone to come to you. It simply meant to make a gesture. But by the 1400s, beck meant to signal someone to approach. The words beckon and beacon, as in the light, actually come from the same Proto-Indo-European word that meant to shine. And if you think about it, a beacon can call someone to it just like a beckon. Although the two-word beckon call is most definitely an error, two related restaurants in Denver are called beckon and call, which is sometimes written in their marketing as just beckon call, like the mistaken spelling. And it seems like that will probably add to the confusion in that city. Also, novelist Timothy Zahn introduced a device called a beck and call, like the two-word mistake, in his Star Wars Expanded Universe trilogy, published in the early 90s. Apparently, the beck and call is a kind of remote control or tracker that gives a distant person different kinds of control over a ship including bringing or beckoning the ship back to the controller. Here's a relevant passage from Star Wars' Vision of the Future. Stray thoughts, Luke said, pulling out the beck and call and handing it to her. You're not going to be able to call the fire from here, though. We're way out of range, and I seem to remember the beck and call being strictly line of sight. No, there's also a broadcast setting, Mara said, but the range is pretty limited. Still, there may be transmitters in the high tower I can run the call signal through. Pretty cool, huh? I like the wordplay. The two-word version does also turn up occasionally in web articles. Who knows, if enough editors get laid off, maybe the beck and call error will become an accepted spelling. I'll still fight against it, though. I don't think this one is a lost cause yet. Finally, I have a family-like story that seems especially appropriate for this time of year. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Lindley from Portland, Oregon, and I have a family-like story for you. When my son was growing up, we lived in a town that had lots of sugar maple trees. And uh, sugar maples are known for having really bright leaves. During the summer, they're bright green, almost translucent. And when they change in the fall, they change with a gradient that goes from green to yellow to orange to red, and it's an extremely bright color. It's very striking when the sun shines through it. When my son was younger, he loved all things brightly colored and tie-dye. And one day as we were driving down a street where the sun was shining through these very bright sugar maple leaves, he looked up and he said, Mommy, look, there are tie-dye trees. And it brought us a laugh, but ever since then, many years have gone by, and whenever we see a tree changing its colors, we say there are the tie-dye trees. It doesn't have to be a sugar maple. Any tree that is changing for fall is now a tie-dye tree and brings us great joy in our house. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Thanks, Lynn. I do love the trees with their leaves changing color this time of year. I loved your story. If you want to call with the story of your familect, the word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 83321 4 girl and I might play it on the show. 
Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager was Michelle Margulis, and our assistant manager was Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant was Davina Tomlin. And I was Mignon Fogarty. That was all. Thanks for listening. 